I mean, it's funny even because I shot Nas for Complex in 2012, which is probably about a year before the Mass Appeal sort of rebirth would happen with Peter and, and Sasha. And we're on the set and I'm talking to Nas and I'm like, yeah, you probably don't remember this, but you know, I was a dude, I interviewed you with extra P for mass appeal. And he was like, I did an interview with extra P. And I'm like, yeah, it was on the cover. You guys sitting at this table. And he was like, bro, my, my memory is so terrible. Like I, I was used to smoke so much weed and I actually like pulled up the image on the internet for him and he was like oh holy shit i completely forgot that this ever even happened i don't think i've seen this cover probably since like whenever the publicist gave it to me like you know after, right after we shot it he was like yo that's so crazy and then cut to whatever 14 months later peter and sasha devised this plan and they pull him in and you know that that image and that the fact that he was on the cover sort of like is just this like picture perfect piece of storytelling. First, First I say, say what we're gonna, gonna do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know, what do you wanna do? What we're gonna do, what you wanna do. I have an idea. You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Welcome to the program. On this episode, we're featuring part two of our now extended three-part podcast with Noah Callahan Bevo. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane and talk about Noah's ascension from Blaze magazine to becoming A&R at Stimulated Records and working on Everlast's Eat at Whitey's. We'll also be talking about being recruited for his former role as editor-in-chief at Mass Appeal magazine. All of this and so much more on this episode. You've talked about your run as writer at large curating some of the coverage that was featured in Blaze magazine. Looking back, is there a specific moment in which you credit for teaching you how to turn critical thinking into growth and transformation as a writer and journalist? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, my time at Blaze and my time at Vibe was really sort of consequential to teaching me how to think about the publishing industry. Um, you know, when I started at, at, at Vibe in the summer of 97, you know, that was the, the that was the year that that Bad Boy took over. And, you know, Vibe was very much... Uh, hitting sort of it, the pinnacle of its ascendancy in, in that moment. And, um, and that carried on through Blaze. And so, you know, being a kid that had come from independent publishing, I, I obviously learned 
an inordinate amount from Ego Trip um, about how to make things the scrappy way. But coming into Vibe and Blaze in that moment, you know, we we got to see, I got to see really how, uh, you know, mainstream publishing worked um, with right. all the bells and whistles and, you know, all the strategy and thoughtfulness that goes behind it. And, and to, to a lesser degree, even how the larger sort of business of publishing worked. Um, you know, my time at Blaze, I, I learned a lot from, you know, literally everyone that I worked under, you know, whether it was Alan Light and then Danielle at, at Vibe or Jesse Washington and then Mimi at, at Blaze, each one, each one had their own styles and their own sort of uh, strong, you know, strengths. Um, and, you know, I was just sort of taking notes the whole way. And I think with Blaze, you know, what, what I saw was, you know, Jesse taught me the, the work ethic that it takes to get something from, you know, zero to 60 and, and how to get uh, a startup off the ground. Um, you know, the amount of effort that went into making that, particularly that first issue of Blaze was inordinate. And by the end, you know, we were, you know, working nights and weekends and he was sleeping in the office basically. Um, and then when Mimi took over, um, I learned a lot about strategy. Um, I think the initial plan and mission statement of Blaze was that they really were supposed to be a head-to-head -head competitor with the source. And that was really how the magazine was operated for that first year, year and change. Um, to sort of, I would say, moments of success, but not anything that would really ever sort of rival the um, supremacy that the source was enjoying in that, in that period. Right. And, um, and Mimi, when she took over as editor and she very quickly shifted gears and realized that there was a whole swath of young artists that were out, um, you know, as the sort of rap industry was expanding very rapidly in the, you know, moment after puff and bad boy and you know it, it was a, a growth industry and so there was a ton of new young artists that were getting signed in 97 98 and so by 99 and 2000 um you know the source was still sort of like you know they had deep relationships with all of the heritage and legacy artists many of whom were the biggest at the moment still but they didn't have very much real estate to dedicate to the, you know, new faces um, that were emerging. And I think Mimi saw that as an opportunity and really invested the lion's share of, you know, the energy that happened at, at Blaze into creating a platform for the, you know, artists, the, the DMXs, um, the Locks, the Lil Wayne's. Uh, the Trick Daddies and Trinas and Beanie Seagulls and Dragons and all of those, you know, Eve, um, people who were getting a page or a couple pages in the source at the time, we would put them on the cover. And that really created, you know, uh, a unique value proposition for Blaze in the marketplace. And we saw the sales go crazy. That hit me very powerfully in just sort of understanding how strategy could be applied to building 
you know, a brand like this in the media space. What's interesting about that time and space is that you're figuratively a student of magazine making, but you're also in real time, you're also actually a student at that time. Do you think that college was necessary at that time? No. Um, you know, and NYU, I would say that the best thing I could say about it was that it gave me an opportunity to stay in the city um, where I had this professional momentum. Um, and, you know, I met some great people, um, some friends that I keep in touch with to this day. Um, but I was extremely unengaged in my classes, doing essentially the least. Um, and while, you know, some of the professors that I dealt with were, were cool and some of the classes that I, I took were informative, um, I had enough going on um, that it really felt like, you know, more of a chore than, you know, I think an opportunity um, which is is kind of a bummer because I do think, you know, there is a lot that higher education can offer beyond just the social. Um, right. However, given the headspace that I was in and, you know, the commitments that I had on my plate, I just didn't really have the time or the energy to learn sort of more abstract or avant-garde things for the sake of learning. Um, right. And, you know very quickly it just kind of became you know at at first it was something that I that I did somewhat diligently and and it it kept slipping lower and lower in my priorities um as the years went on because I just realized that other than whatever value having that diploma has and at, at that point I frankly my real motivation was the fact that my parents had invested um you know real money into getting me that diploma. Um, so the idea of, of leaving without finishing seemed like kind of a flushing money down the toilet. But in terms of the actual skills, um, there wasn't there wasn't much for me to, to take from that place. Now for the journey that you would eventually go on and were on back then, of course, what are your recollections of interviewing 50 Cent for Blaze during such varying stages within his life. How did those experiences fit into your ascension as a writer in terms of storytelling? I mean, you know, 50, uh, I, I think, well, in, in a sort of, in a broader sense, I think music journalists often find themselves in situations where they are able to develop a relationship with an ascendant talent. And just like everyone else in the industry, you know, and this goes for project managers and marketing people and publicists. And, you know, when you develop that relationship, that can become, you know, uh, a valuable asset um, for your career. And I think, you know, my relationship with Eminem and my relationship with 50 and my relationship with Kanye, all of them, you know, and none of them were by design, by any, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, you know, being there at the ground floor with each of them did, I think, um, you know, create a rapport and an intimacy that you just can't fake down the line after the person is famous. And 50, you know, a gentleman named Tone Boots who worked for Blaze, um, who 
had some business dealings with Jimmy Henchman, um, who had a label at the time. And um, at some point, I guess, I don't know if he knew Chaz or what the nature of the situation was. But one day on like a Thursday or Friday afternoon, um, we're all just hanging out at the office kind of, you know, in the evening. And Tone pops in and he's there with Chaz and some of the Black Hand Entertainment people. And they are dropping off the uh, Black Gangster soundtrack, which I don't know if you're familiar with. is probably most famous because it has a phenomenal Jay-Z song um, called This Life Forever. Right. Um, the, the movie I don't think ever actually got made or uh, put out, but the soundtrack did. Um, but anyway... One of the gentlemen who comes through wearing a Black Hand Entertainment t-shirt is 50 Cent. And it's explained to me that this is a young guy that's messing with tra uh, Trackmasters and signed to Sony. And he's got a record coming out and he plays us How to Rob. And they explain that this is going to be on, I think, a sub uh, forthcoming Clue tape. Um, and so I don't even remember who was the sort of assigning editor at the time but someone is just like hey this thing sounds like it's probably going to make some noise which obviously you know he's calling out every major rapper um was seemed like a reasonable bet so i stepped out onto the fire escape with 50 and conducted probably one of the first interviews with him ever um and the following week uh he would put the record out and then um Jay-Z would famously respond to him at Summer Jam. Go against Jigga, your ass is dense. I'm about a dollar. What the fuck is 50 cents? And, you know, at that point, it was really, he seemed like off to the races for 50. Um, and I would interview him one more time. I would run into him um, because Sony was intending to drop the Power of the Dollar album, I believe, in the fall of 99. So I went to... Uh, Sony's office on 550 Madison um, with the music editor Mahmoud and um, we went to listen to the album and 50 popped in um, I'll never forget he was wearing a, a Patriots uh, um, jersey and he comes in to sit down with us and like sits down and then realizes that I guess he's got a gun in his sort of tucked into his waistband and puts uh a very large pistol um, on the table, but then twists it so that we know that it, it, there's, this isn't meant to be threatening. This was, she's just making himself comfortable. Um, and we talked about the record and whatnot. Um, and then in January of 2000, um, after lots of delays, Sony was telling us that they were intending to finally put out Power of the Dollar, which myself and Mahmoud and, and Mimi all thought was a phenomenal record. Um, so I went out to uh, Jamaica, Queens, and I met 50 um, and went and ate dinner at Red Lobster. And he uh, drove me around, showed me, you know, Guyar Brewer Boulevard and, um, you know, where he used to hang out as a as a teenager. And then we went back to his uh, grandmother's house um, where Marquise, his son, was at. It was a, probably about two or 18 months at the time. Um, and we went down to the basement, which I guess is where he was living and uh, did a, probably like a two or two and a half hour interview. Um, and then 
then he was nice enough to drive me back to the F train. It took a million stops on the F back to the city uh, to go home. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, during that period, I, I really got to know him pretty well. Um, and, you know, there's certain artists that you meet and they're just so dynamic. And I, I said this about, you know, meeting Eminem, but these people are just extraordinary in a way that is sometimes hard to put your finger on in the moment. But I remember with 50 just thinking that the strategy, the way that he talked about strategy around creating mm -hmm. music and sort of crafting his career and the relationships that he had built and also the clarity and detail when I asked him about his time in the street was just sort of unlike anyone that I had ever talked to. He he clearly understood the mechanics of business, whether it was talking about a criminal enterprise or, you know, being part of a major label system. Um, but he had absolute clarity around how he thought about what he was trying to do and how to accomplish what he was trying to do. Um, and and again, and then the level of detail that he could talk about his life in the street just left me feeling like there, I have no doubt that everything that he's saying is true. There's nothing vague. There's no blurry details or fuzzy memories. He he remembers absolutely every detail of going to court and who took what bid and how that impacted his situation and going to shock, you know, I think he went to shock camp because he, he was able to do the this thing where he went to it was sort of like a military boot camp instead of um going to state prison and again just so detailed um it it just stuck out to me and i i thought like and you know you sort of combine that with listening to power of the dollar and hearing songs like ghetto quran um and it just seemed like there's something really really unique and special um about this artist and you know Clearly, in that moment, it wasn't quite connecting for him, but I was absolutely adamant that one way or another, 50 Cent was going to make that connection and be a massive star. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes me, but that's okay, because I don't like y'all anyway. And I don't like y'all anyway. Oh y'all, oh y'all. My watch talk for me, my whip talk for me, my talk for me. Bad with up on me, even who don't know me, they wanna think of the I floss with me, saying a lot for me. I came in the rap humble. I don't give a now. I serve anybody like who hustle up, damn. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Price go up, come down. The D's running my grip, I'm nowhere to be found. To hustle for me, they don't even stash. They keep them on them. So shortly after your interview with 50 Drops, Vibe decides to stop publishing Blaze due to Blaze magazine ultimately falling short of circulation and advertising goals. I'm curious as to how are you, how are you then evaluating your place and purpose moving forward? And to what extent are you then using those challenges to rethink and reinvent yourself? Um, I mean, you know, I, I clearly like this was a, a real moment in learning about business. Um, you know, 
the situation was that uh, what I believe Bob Miller had pitched to the investors was that um, Blaze would become profitable in four years. Um, and so all of the budgets had been predicated on that idea. And around two years in, the investors did not think that we were necessarily on track um, to hit, you know, the sort of growth goals and uh, decided to pull the plug, even though, you know, we had a place in the marketplace and, and, a, and a momentum. Um, and obviously this was not going to be a great look for Vibe. Um, and, you know, for me, that was definitely like a moment of like, oh, okay, like among the first sort of hard financial decisions that I had seen a company have to make um, and understanding that, you know, this is not, none of this is promised, none of it's guaranteed. And it's not about how good the work is or, you know, people's relationships. Um, you know, there are, there's a board and they just want their money back as quickly as possible. Um, so that, that was definitely informative. And then, you know, I, right at that same time, I, I was very fortunate because, uh, Elliot who was one of my mentors from ego trip ended up landing at double XL and becoming the editor in chief there. And he really, uh, you know, graciously threw me a lifeline almost immediately. I mean, when I say immediately, I mean, within like about 15 minutes of finding out that Blaze was over, wow. Elliot was paging me and, um, you know, he was very quick to to create space in their rotation for me, um, which absolutely, you know, at a time, it sounds crazy, I was, me and my roommate were splitting uh, a two bedroom in Queens for 950 a month. Um, but, you know, I was out on the own on my own without any nest egg or anything. You know, I, I had to make ends meet. Um, and so that was, you know, definitely extremely uh crucial that, you know, I end up sort of landing. Um, but that, you know, and ultimately reuniting with Elliot um, you know, led to some career highlights and, you know, also some of my favorite writing assignments. I, you know, when I went to XXL that time, I ended up writing about the clips um, for their first album, going to Virginia, um, going down to Philly and interviewing Beanie Siegel and the state property guys several times. How was that? It was great. Um, you know, I had, I had interviewed Siegel a few times. Um, I did a cover story for XXL in the summer of 2001. It's, Siegel and Jay-Z's in the background. Um, and yeah, and then I ended up uh, going down and um, going to TGI Fridays with the um, all of state property. I will never forget sitting in a parking lot. Um, Beans had just gotten the a CD copy of um, uh, just Fire, I think it's called, the uh, Just Blaze record with Cameron and Beanie and Bleak um, that would appear on uh, Come Home With Me. Um, and him like playing that with both car doors open and like all the guys standing around, everybody's going crazy because Siegel has such a bananas verse on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I it, it, it was really a... a a fun time um you know i was obviously living extremely modestly but you know every month i was flying to you know 
Kentucky to go interview uh, Nappy Roots. And then I get home and I'm flying the next weekend to Virginia to go meet Pusha and Malice and then taking the train to Philly to meet these guys. And, you know, I was on the go and uh, churning out a ton of copy and having a great time. And, you know, it was a, a very exciting, exciting period for me. At which point does Dante Ross reach out and recruit you to become ENR at Stimulated? And what were some of those challenges personally and professionally for the next, I guess, eight to 10 months, was it? So that was, um, he started reaching out in the fall of 1999. Um, and he offered me a job being an ANR at his label, Stimulated, which was distributed by Loud, and also to do administrative uh, ANR admin duties on. Um, Eat at Whitey's, uh, the second, or I guess it's the third solo Everlast album, but the second rock album that he would do um, on Tommy Boy. This was the follow-up to um, Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. And uh, um, yeah, he just cold called me and was like, hey man, you know, I've been asking around for like young people with ears and taste um, and a work ethic and, you know, Sasha Jenkins and, uh, Stretch Armstrong both told me that you were the you were the guy to talk to. You know, do you have any interest in this? And um, that was going to mean dropping out of school. Um, and so I did that. Um, and I think, yeah, my I did the first semester of my junior year at NYU, and then I dropped out. And uh, basically, Jan one two thousand uh, started working for Dante, and you know spending uh most of my days and nights over on 580 broadway at the office or in the uh stimulated dummies studio down in the west beth um where they were making the the everlast record they call me white devil black jesus everlast the new album edith whitey's in store now can you give me a little more insight from being inside that room with Everlast? What What's it like when he's creating in that space for some of his most career-defining sessions? I mean, it, it was amazing. You know, it those guys had sort of quite unexpectedly sold an insane amount of records with the first album. Um, I don't think that anyone went into Whitey Ford's Sings the Blues with any particular expectations besides making something that they liked and something that was interesting. And the song, what it's like had just caught and struck a nerve and, you know, became a massive hit at rock radio, at pop radio, um, and really, you know, opened Eric up to a whole different market. Um, and, you know, he also ended up kind of being the extremely tasteful option in the rap rock wave that, you know, crashed uh, or splashed in uh, 1998. Um, if you think about that was the year that Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit yeah. um, all popped. And, you know, um, yeah, it, none of that was for me. Um, but Everlast, you know, he is a real rap dude and as is Dante. And although they were making something that was, you know, much more rock and country inspired, you know, the... the the drum programming, you know, the 808 bass sounds, like all of that was real hip hop. And so there was, you know, I think a real a real commitment to the core tenets of rap music in 
that album um that just you didn't see in any of the rest of the sort of rap rock stuff and um you know which is kind of why i was excited to be a part of it i thought that record was interesting and um you know it was dope because they it's i think they had recorded the first album in in la and I th my feeling was that everlast felt like it was too comfortable to record in um los angeles you know really? they they had sold a ton of records. He's obviously um, from L.A. And, you know, recording in L.A. in general is a very laid back proposition. New York is, you know, hustle and bustle. And, you know, um, you're walking to work, you know, you're walking to the studio, you're walking back to wherever you're staying. You know, a lot more going on in the nightlife scene in New York back then. This is like when bottle service was starting first popping and you know this sort of like peak puffy era of that um you know the tunnel is going is still going nuts at that point um and so i think everlast really wanted to do something that was a little less comfortable and to kind of you know force him and dante and, and gamble to you know get get back to the sort of roots of you know um their creative process right. and the S, you know, you have to understand the SD50 studio. Um, it's you know, uh, for a kid that grew up looking at pictures of, you know, the dungeon or uh, Pete Rock's uh, studio, mm. you know, it's a dream. It's a '90s dream. It was a little hole in the wall in the basement of an artist uh, community over in the West Village called the West Beth. It's basically a um, a sort of uh, means controlled building made for artists to be able to live so like if you, you can you can't make more than a certain amount of money and live there and then they have like wow. hundred you know maybe i don't know not hundreds but maybe 50 studios in the basement um that the residents um can you know have have not access to but they they can sort of take ownership of individual spaces and um i believe john gamble lived in the west beth and so um they had this studio in the basement and, you know and again this is like a dank new york city apartment building basement there's no frills you know and just boxes of records and every kind of moog or crazy synthesizer you can imagine mm -hmm. uh, and um you know and then a little vocal booth and uh you know and some folding chairs um i often would have to sit on the floor because it was like literally probably three or four folding chairs so like you know the grown-ups would sit in the folding chairs and if eric was doing vocals like i'd just be on the floor or on a crate of records um no and it, it so it was really cool and, and just also watching i had at that point seen people write rhymes i had not seen people compose songs so it was interesting to see eric come from the hotel and like have like a little riff that he was playing with on his guitar and then like sit there and kind of like work that out. And then while some of the session players that they were pulling in or, or, you know, Dante and John would be like working on drum programming or whatever. And you sort of really watch this thing come together. And then the lyrics would come, you know, sort of at the end. Although I always got the sense that Eric largely knew, you know, while he was working out those melody things, it wasn't, um, in isolation from the lyrics like he he was kind of building that concurrently right. 
Um, and it was amazing because, you know, even though they were doing it in this real scrappy way, Tommy Boy, you know, had opened up all of the budgets because he had sold so many records for them. You know, no one else on Tommy Boy in 1998 was selling, you know, four or five million albums. And, um, and so they just, you know, kind of anything that they could dream of, um, they could make happen. So, you know, if they're sitting around listening to a record and someone's like, oh man, you know, you don't sound crazy on this. You know, CeeLo would sound crazy. And then it's like two weeks later, CeeLo sending the reel back. Um, or, you know, uh, Warren Haynes, um, the guitarist, or, you know, um, literally just like anyone that you could think of, they just, it was like, oh yeah, oh, lit. let's get Santana to do a, you know, solo at the end of whatever this record. And, you know, and getting to hear them come up with these ideas and then see the finished product was pretty, pretty phenomenal. Being so close to that album and those sessions, do you have a favorite track? Um, hmm. I mean, Black Coffee was always incredible. Um, or is it Black Coffee or Coffee? That one was crazy. Black Jesus, I think, was amazing. Um, I don't know if I necessarily thought it was like uh the best move strategy-wise, uh, given where he was in the market and who he was trying to market the record to, but it's an absolutely great record. Um, the lyrics are, are awesome and the beat is super infectious. Um, those two always always jumped out to me on the singing side. And then um, he had an Alchemist song with Be Real on that record that also had a really right. great sort of like peak 2000, you know, uh, not exactly like this, but kind of in the vein of... Uh, that Capone Noriega record, Bang Bang. What? You think it can't happen? Soul Assassins, 2000. Word. Go sign like this. Uh, vision Quest, Fresh Fest, Era Terror. Crush groove it like a low budget movie. Wild style like Lee Kenyones. Stop riding on my cojones. I talk with the speak that's much unique. Why you desperately seek for that Susie freak? Your word to rob one, he used to like the big lady. My name's Everlasting. Take me through a typical day working out with the stimulated office alongside that in that period. What was a typical day like back then? It was the most unprofessional place you could possibly imagine. I mean, it was me and dart an intern or two and the gm djms and it was just us sitting around uh you know i was definitely uh smoking weed at like 11 in the morning for no reason at all um and just listening to music extremely loud all day long taking meetings you know listening to beat cds you know meeting with producers um meeting with artists um but it was real like scrappy 90s independent rap music life um it was not there it was not a highly efficient uh office by any means um and dante rarely if ever even came to the office because he was so sort of consumed with his life as a producer at that point you know you have to understand this is like 
1999, 2000. And so, you know, hip hop split very sort of uh, dramatically in 96 and 97, um, where there was sort of commercial rap and the underground. And the underground was a, a scene that, you know, emanated out of Fat Beats and um, the Wake Up Show and Stretch and Bobbito. Um, and it had uh, a real ceiling to it. You know, if you could sell 5,000 pieces of vinyl, you were doing incredibly well in, in that moment. Um, if you could do 7,500, it was off the charts. Um, and then the commercial artists were, you know, they weren't trying to be regional hits. They weren't trying to be local hits. They wanted, you know, they had seen what Puff had done. They had seen what Jay-Z and the Rough Riders had done. Um, it was about, yeah, sure, you want to get on Funk Flex, but then you want to even go, you know, you want to be in every market across the country and you know the way that the marketing budgets were set up for artists to go gold which had been a you know uh a goal in the early or mid 90s was now like uh, okay you could break even at, at gold but you really need to go platinum if you want to make any real money and so here we are on this you know little label putting out 12 inch records but we're part of the sony and loud system um and kind of caught in between like what exactly what what do we want to do you know do should we sign you know underground acts that we deeply believe in but who have zero interest in becoming mainstream artists or do we take do we try to chase sort of like undiscovered potentially commercially viable artists and try to incubate them so that they can get upstream through the loud system. And, you know, being frank, I think at that moment, like me and Dart's taste definitely sort of um, aired towards the, the former. And I think Dante, although probably his heart and his love airs towards the former, he is a record guy and in the music industry and, you know, wants to be successful both for his own sort of, you know, esteem, but also for the business and to be a, you know, a contributing part of the lad system. Um, and it just meant that we kind of didn't really get a whole lot done. You know, we, we signed a few things. Dante put out a, a casual 12 inch with that Alchemist produced. That was great. Um, he put out the missing links, uh, EP. We put out a Sadat X, uh, EP that had a couple really great songs on it. Um, but, you know, we didn't, we, we just didn't really have uh, a North Star in terms of what we wanted to do. And, you know, getting a record on, on Pound 97 or on Funkmaster Flex, you know, that was, the, that was the time when you just, you had to have a, a promo budget. And you had to work your records in in the ways that major labels work their records. And we just didn't have that. What was that balance like between you being close to the music and you figuring out how you could have an impact in your own way without being an artist yourself? Uh, it didn't go well. Um, what I, I learned very quickly working for Dante was that I am, you know, I love music. I can think about it. Um, 
and I can talk about it fairly articulately, but there is a huge difference between being able to uh, intellectualize and sort of take apart what is interesting about music or what is what makes music interesting um, and being able to make the creative decisions that actually make that music in the first place. And, you know, Dante, to his credit, really threw me in, you know, two feet, head, two feet in head first or whatever, um, and had me mixing records and, you know, sitting with veteran artists like Sadat and Diamond D. And, um, you know, it became very, very clear to me very quickly that, you know, I just did not have, I was not educated enough about the actual process of creating songs um, or mixing, mixing albums or mastering um, to be as useful in that role as I would like to, you know, as I would have liked to be. And, you know, I had a couple incidents very quick, like, I don't know, I want to say like probably like two months in, uh, he sent me in to mix the record X-Men by Sadat X and Diamond D. And like, you know, I sit on the couch in uh, D&D from like 7 p.m. till four in the morning with Diamond and he's mixing it with the, the mix engineer and they get to the end and Diamond's like, all right, what do you think? And I'm like, I mean, you're Diamond D, dude. Like, you tell me. If, if you think it's good, it's good to me. And then I get it back to the office the next day and I play it for Dante and he like calls out like 16 different things that I missed. Um, and, you know, Dante was really like generous with his time and like walked me through actually at that point how to mix. I don't think he really understood how green I was. Um, but then I had a couple other incidents where we were either working on like the stimulated volume one album or like we had signed some of the kids from um, Money Boss Players um, and we're working on a record with them. And again, I, you know, I'm third in there and I'm trying to like vocal coach them and it just was tedious for them and it was tedious for me um and i just realized after i don't know maybe about eight months of doing this that like when i'm making a magazine it works because i know exactly what i want it to be and i have a reasonably good feel for how to execute all the parts of it i know how to use pork express i know how to use photoshop I know how to write. Um, I know how to edit things. And I have, you know, a very sort of def definite taste when it comes to photography and visuals. And so when I'm making a magazine, I can sort of step in at any point in the process and, you know, help to uh, create exactly what it is that I see in my head. And in music, I just don't have that gift. Um, and and I actually found that artists don't think about music the way that music journalists think about music. And if anything, intellectualizing the music making process in that way actually takes them out of their sort of like zone and it sort of you know 
I don't know. I, I don't really know what the analogy would be, but it's just like it's you're 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 talking in different languages about something that's so sensitive um and demands so many sort of micro creative decisions. Um, and it just felt to me like I'm more in the way than I am being helpful here. And, you know, it is one part frustrating for me because, you know, I know what I like and I know what sounds good and I, and I can hear a song and be like, I don't, that one's not for me. I'm never going to listen to that. But what it takes to coach that artist into making that is something that, you know, you, I think yeah. you have to be a real producer in a sense. And, you know, I think that's Dante's gift, right? Is that, you know, he thinks about music in that way. Um, and he also understands the importance of just like vibe and, um, and that there, it's not, it's not a math problem that you're trying to solve, right? It's, it's a, it's a piece of art and you just kind of, kind of, you know, you move your brush around and you don't, you don't think super self-consciously about every stroke. And then you just step back and like, sometimes it's going to be perfect and sometimes it's not, but that's okay. And then you just got to move on. And that's, that was really, I think, um, you know, informative for me and it changed my career path. And I think it also really changed the way that I wrote about music after that. Um, because I, I don't know, I felt a lot more empathy for the artists and the creators. Um, and I felt, I understood what it took for someone to spend, you know, a year or a year and a half of their life making something. And even if you don't like that something, like, you can still talk about it with respect and some reverence for the effort that went into it. Um, and, you know, you don't need to score points off them with, you know, little like pithy one, one line jokes. And I, I, you know, it made me sort of like reevaluate a lot of the stuff that I had written in the earliest part of my career. And, you know, approach my my process as a critic in a very different way. This is sort of a period where like a lot of the the criticism was, you know, understandably trying to be entertainment in its own right. And I, I respect that and I totally understand the impulse and the place that that, you know, can sort of exist in within the culture. But for me, I just felt like I have to be able to put myself in this creator's shoes. And if I spent two years making this thing, how would I want someone to talk about it or think about it? And even if they don't like it, like I don't want to be the butt of someone's joke. Right. And and also I wanted, especially if I didn't like something, I wanted the artist and the producers and all the people that were involved to understand that I took their creative investment in this piece of work product seriously. And, and I was dealing with it with the gravity that, you know, shows some 
sort of like deference to what they've put into this. Even if I ultimately am like, yeah, this is, you know, this exhibit album is not as good as the last one or whatever, you know, whatever, like it, the thing misses the mark for me on X, Y, and Z reasons. But again, just not being so flip. And also, you know, this is a period where increasingly uh, critics were being forced to like review albums in, you know, go listen, go, go to the Sony office and listen to the album in a conference room with fluorescent lights on. Um, and, you know, you can listen to it twice and take notes and then go home and write about it. And like, just knowing that, like, you know, I remember getting like, I don't know, Resurrection or the far side, you know, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side and like getting them home and listening to the tape and being like, okay, it's cool. And then like three weeks later, being on a, you know, on a road trip with my family and like only having resurrection and, you know, uh, what was it? Blowout comb in my backpack for whatever reason and ha being forced to listen to resurrection like five times and then being like, God damn, this album is like so brilliant. But, you know, if I had been forced to write a review off of the first spin I gave it, I would have been like, ah, it's cool. It's fine. Another big moment for you was writing for MTV's direct effect, which happens as Times Square and pop music were both going through a pretty seismic shift. How do you get to MTV? Um, the people at MTV had reached out to my former boss, Mimi Valdez, and said, hey, we're looking to make a hip hop version of TRL. Um, do you know we need, you know, someone to be a head writer? Do you know anyone? And um, she just gave them my phone number and I got called out of the blue um, and uh, and went in there. And, you know, at this point, this is kind of probably about eight months after or 10 months after work, working for Dante um, the first time. I would end up working for Dante again for a little bit after that. But, um, and, um, you know, I had come to that realization of like, I don't think being an A&R, being in the music industry is necessarily my path forward. This was like awesome and like an incredible learning experience. And I'm forever grateful for meeting Dante and meeting Ems and meeting, you know, Dart Parker, going to be my best friend and best man at my wedding, et cetera. So this is, it was an incredibly positive experience, but I got to figure out something new. And then this drops in my lap and it was like, oh, here we go. Um, I've never written for TV, but I grew up obsessed with MTV. I watched every spring break. I watched UMTV raps, you know, weekly when it was weekly and then daily when it was daily. Um, you know, I knew all the real worlds and the road rules and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and the opportunity to go work there, you know, this is the, I think I started at, in the end of August of 2000. Um, so this is, you know, right, like maybe a month before Jackass premieres, um, you know, a few months before, uh, Bye bye bit bye bye bye. The um in sync record comes out. So this is really kind of the zenith of MTV um moment. And 
it was an incredible experience, you know, writing live TV um, is incredibly stressful. Um, trying to make a hip hop product in the MTV system is incredibly challenging. Um, it was shocking um, how sort of uh, unversed in the ways in which hip hop works um, the entire sort of organization was for the most part. Um, I just thought, cause by the, you know, by 2000, I figured this is no longer a, a niche genre and, you know, and I've been watching MTV. I've been watching hip hop on MTV for, you know, over 10 years at this point. So I, I felt like they would probably have a little bit more, um, institutional knowledge, but no. Um, it was definitely the wild, wild west. Um, but it, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, um, I, I learned a ton. I made some great connections. Uh, Sway and I started on the first day. Uh, our, we had the same first day, which was awesome. And, you know, that's a relationship that I, I really value. And Funkmaster Flex was on the show and he and I developed a relationship that, you know, we are still cool um, all these years later. Um and, you know, and I got to be, you know, it, it, even though it was a hip hop show, it was mostly like the staff was mostly former TRL people. And then they brought me and a gentleman named Eric who had come from BET. And so Eric and I were the only ones that really had any sort of relationships in the industry or like, you know, um, connects with with artists or familiarity with the ways in which hip hop worked. What do you think was the legacy of that period in your career? And was there at any point ever any dialogue around the inclusion of any hip hop show, any hip hop programming? Um, so did you push for that? Yeah. So, well, so what happened was, you know, after about six or eight months, Direct Effect um, was not performing at the level that they wanted to, which the irony being that, like, if a show today got the ratings that Direct Effect got, um, it would be like the number one show on all of cable television. But um, at the time, I guess, you know, and to be fair, we were a live, a live show, which is incredibly expensive. And it was probably like a, I don't know, 40 person team. Um, but when that shut down, um, they sort of like shuttled me through the system. And I ended up being uh, a news writer for the, uh, for MTV news. Uh, and, and then sort of just jumping from, uh, you know, whatever, like random list show of the day to, you know, a news doc thing to, you know, writing little daily news write-ups or whatever. And, you know, they kind of kept me in their uh, rotation for, I don't know, the, the better part of two years, I would say. Um, I would say the things that were really interesting to me, I I definitely learned uh, a lesson that I took to complex um, and had enjoyed quite a bit of success, which was just people love lists. There is not a sort of uh, like people love the value proposition of a an authority figure stating taste definitively <laughs> because either the taste aligns with your taste and that is an affirming feeling that you you know oh like i'm i'm my taste is just as good as these people who are professionals or yeah. the taste is bad 
and you think that the list is horrible, which is even more satisfying because then you feel like you should actually have that job. And who are these people who are being paid full time to come up with these terrible lists? Um, both of which are incredibly satisfying emotional engagements. Um, and I noticed that um, when I was working at MTV, I wrote like a bunch of like hip hop's blingiest videos. And I don't know, I, at least like three of those kinds of like countdown shows. And the other thing that I know, you know, realized was just also how the mechanic of a countdown can sustain an audience over time and how you can use that to pull people through um, content. And, you know, obviously when we got to complex, you know, years later and we're trying to figure out how to maximize page views, um, the lists were, you know, extremely, extremely important. And, you know, as much as uh, I know it could be an unpleasant user experience, ultimately we were trying to create a paradigm that worked financially, you know, if you take a great list idea and you spread it out over 50 slides, every visitor that comes, you're going to get 50, you know, page impressions from them and you're serving ads every three pages. It becomes, you know, in, in a digital media um, environment where, you know, which is really like a race to the bottom in terms of um, the CPM or like cost per milli um, of the display advertisers. That was a way that was like, okay, Here's a way that we can do something that I authentically want to do, like the 50 best samples in hip hop history. Like it's a piece of content that I am personally invested in making because I think it's awesome. And I think that information should be organized for posterity. And then here is a formatting uh, paradigm that can actually make it financially tenable for the company. Um, but that really did come from you know, working on these these list shows at, at MTV and realizing like, wow, they are able to drag a viewer through, you know, 60 minutes with ad breaks every eight minutes um, because they get three new spots on the list. What was the reason for leaving MTV? Um, It just wasn't really going anywhere. You know, I would show up at nine, I'd pitch my stories, I'd write a couple things, I'd coach, you know, whoever the news anchor was uh, through their delivery, whether that's like Gideon or, or Ian Robinson or whoever. And then I'd go home and it just like, I had no real investment in the overall success of the company or the business or the team. Um, so it just felt like, you know, factotum work really. Um, yeah. And, you know, and then I was frustrated because my, efforts to try to to sort of you know make more ambitious things sort of fell on deaf ears um i definitely remember in that spring of probably 2001 pitching essentially what would become um everyday struggle but you know looking at wow. first take um and you know the sort of that was when espn was really you know, uh, coming into its own and, and looking at the way that sports analysis had evolved um, in the cable news uh, environment and thinking like, all I do is sit around my friends and argue about rap music all day. Like that's, I leave here and we sit in someone's crib and we listen to albums back to back to back and argue about 
whatever minutia. And like, there has to be a way to commodify that conversation and that discourse. And this is obviously pre social media too. So like, I know that these conversations are happening because I meet people all the time and I can tell that them and their friends are having the same conversations. Um, and it's like, there has to be a way to platform this discourse um, that is compelling and can get people involved. And so I, I pitched a show that was, yeah, kind of in that, in that vein. Um, what was the reaction? You know, it, I think the feeling was that it was too myopic and too niche and like, you know, also you have to remember, this is like when Jackass is just, they're, they're realizing this is like the moment where right. they've realized that anytime we air music videos, we will get a 0.5, which is 500,000 viewers. Anytime we could run a jackass repeat for the third time in the same day, and it'll do a 1.2 or a 1.3. Um, and so the feeling there was very much, we are music television and that's sort of our ethos and our bread and butter, but people don't actually want that much music content. They want music adjacent mm. content. And what I was pitching was very, you know, um, ahead of his time. Yeah. It was not, there was no sort of, uh, they did, they, they just didn't think that, and, you know, and, and again, to be fair, like nobody was doing that and the internet didn't exist. So there was no real proof of concept that the, this, this discourse was ubiquitous and that everyone was having these conversations, you know, and you're also dealing with a bunch of executives who don't listen to rap music. And I do think that, that, that kind of, um, sports type analysis is wholly unique to hip hop, um, as a, as a genre. I don't, you know, and I, I'm, I'm open to being wrong, but I don't believe that like 14 year olds that like country music are sitting around arguing about the lyrics of country songs or <laughs> talking about who's bet, who, who, who's snapping more this one or that one. You know what I mean? It's just a different yeah. thing. Um, there's Absolutely. a competitive element to, to hip hop that is just unique. And so, you know, as I'm trying to explain this, like if you're talking, you know, I was 20 at the time and I'm talking to like a, 45 year old dude that you know is vaguely aware of like who jay-z is and who eminem is but like it's not living with these records he doesn't open the liner notes and pay attention to you know who's producing the records he's just like yeah that sounds really boring like people yeah. arguing about like music nerd shit uh. still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access 
so much more. Which takes us to Mass Appeal. What is it that elevated you from MTV to Mass Appeal? And what was your relationship as a reader prior to you becoming editor-in-chief? You know, I, I was sort of aware of Mass Appeal. I had seen it um, on, you know, on some newsstands and flipped through it, you know, at a, at a couple of sort of like magazine boutiques and stuff. And I thought it was cool. Um, you know, th- that was a period where all of the sort of core hip hop um, zine media from the early 90s that I had grown up on, the ego trips, the on the goes, the stresses had all um, gone out of business. And there was this sort of second wave hipster uh, meets hip hop, um, you know, of publishing that included Mass Appeal and included Vice that I was kind of like, you know, it, this this isn't my thing, but I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it and paying attention, you know, from, from a distance. Um, and... You know, because at that point also, you know, I'm not working at MTV. I'm writing for XXL all the time. Right. You know, I'm I'm pretty squarely in the center of commercial hip hop. Um, and so as much as, you know, some some of my taste still ran to the independent side, um, I was paying attention to like the big releases um, and the big artists. And, and those were the people that I was, you know, covering and writing about for the most part. Um, so anyway, I say that to say I was aware of it. And then um, Sasha Jenkins from Ego Trip, um, you know, and Sasha and I were great friends, you know, outside of work. And he's one of my mentors and a friend to this day. Um, and Sasha calls me out of the blue um, one afternoon. is like, yo, man, what, what's going on with you, man? And I was like, uh-huh, just, you know, still at MTV News, just doing this stuff. He's like, yo, are you happy? And I'm like, eh, you know. Between this and XXL, I'm making decent money and, you know, it's cool. Why? What's up? And he was like, oh, well, look, you know what Mass Appeal is? I'm like, yes, of course, I've seen it around. He's like, well, those dudes that own it, Pat and Adrian, um, they reached out to me and they asked me to be the editor. And, you know, I got too much shit going on and they can't really afford me. But I told them that I would be the, the editorial director if they let me hire an editor in chief. And I was like, OK. He's like, so do you want to be the editor in chief? Um, and I was like, well, shit, I mean, if, you know, if I, it's an opportunity to work with you and it's not, it's a path to getting out of, um, MTV, that sounds good. And I also had had a, a, an incident, um, probably a month prior to that where, um, I was, uh, what was I doing? Oh, I had applied for an associate music editor gig at Vibe. Um, And again, because I'm just trying to figure out how to like get out of this sort of permalance MTV lifestyle and get some stability, you know, hopefully uh, get some some paychecks that have the taxes taken out of it and maybe some health benefits so I can go go to the doctor for the first time in three or four years. Um, And I went up for it and I got to like the second or third round and you know mind you I've these are now this is whatever 2002 I've known all these people since I was 17 in 1997 so like you know I was the little kid at vibe so I'm thinking 
great. What an awesome, you know, I get to be the prodigal son and come home and this, this can be great. I'm like, there's no one in the world that's like more lean forward on music. And I can really bring like an edgy, um, you know, cutting edge sensibility to the music team. Um, this just seems like a great fit. And ultimately I did not get the job. Um, and that was not awesome, both, uh, financially and, but also, you know, uh, it hurt my ego and, you know, again, it was a, a learning lesson that, you know, none of this stuff is promised. And like, just cause people like you, or just cause you've done some things does not mean you're going to get every opportunity that you want. Um, but part of it also was that the feedback was that I was getting was that they, I didn't have enough experience as an editor. And, you know, I ultimately found, found that to be kind of frustrating because I was like, I'm going to be editing a bunch of stories that are under 400 words. Like I, I write like six of these a month. Like I can definitely coach someone through this, but whatever. But, you know, again, it was, it was fair criticism. I was 22 years old. Um, Different you know, time. Exactly. Like I uh, was definitely out over my skis, at least, you know, how I perhaps saw myself. Um, but anyway, so when I get this opportunity from, from Sasha, I was like, okay, great. This is the chance for me to create a body of work that really represents my worldview and shows my skill set. Um, and I can use this as a sort of foundational building block to level up my career. Um, of course, you know, they were going to pay me, I think, $16,000 a year with no taxes taken out and no health benefits. Um, and the office was in Red Hook. Um, and I lived in a story at the time. So then I had to take a train to a train to a bus to get to the office, which was roughly like an 80 minute process. Um, so it was not without its uh, trials and tribulations, but I did feel very confident. If I can make, you know, a bunch of these magazines, like people are going to see what I have to offer in terms of sort of an editorial sensibility. And so even if I have to take a pay cut from what I'm making now at MTV, that's ultimately going to be worth it. Like I'd rather rough it for a year or two um, and then, you know, launch forward um, and sort of, you know, be uh, taken as this, you know, the serious editorial voice that I think that I, I can be then, you know, sort of like uh, stymie my growth over, you know, a few thousand dollars, um, you know, a couple pairs of Air Force Ones um, at the like Steinway Foot Locker or whatever. Again, I was living a uh, extremely modest lifestyle. So, you know, and I had no responsibilities. I was paying 450 a month or, you know, 425 a month in rent. Um, and other than my, you know, growing anxiety about, you know, taxes that I owed, um, I didn't really have, you know, anyone else to service other than myself and my career. So I, I jumped at the opportunity. If you ain't from around here, you can't come around here. Still, 
always wanted to know what makes things tick. If you have creativity and you have an idea you want to make it real, you can do it here. I had grown up watching the Ego Trip guys work and I absolutely loved the chemistry and the kinship and the friendship. You know, they they were all best friends. You know, they invited me into their circle and we hung out every day, you know, during the day, after work, often on the weekends. Um, and we made this really funny magazine. And, you know, I, I give them all credit. Like I was just mostly along for the ride and trying to like, you know, trying to hit the few shots that I would, I would get. But, um, you know, I really, I really admired the way that they worked together and also the sort of level of scrutiny that they were able to apply to each other's work product. Um, I found to be really like, there was a real integrity, um, that they pushed each other um for greatness on on absolutely every little thing and um and so you know when i got to mass appeal to me that was really like the main sort of inspo you know obviously i i had learned a lot working at, at blaze and working at vibe and, and mtv but like those were such big machines like it, very little of that was going to be applicable you know, I I could take some of the sort of more seriousness around the journalism um, that I had picked up at Vibe working in the um, fact-checking department and apply that. And, and also, frankly, the process, because although, um, you know, Ego Trip was, in my estimation, really high art, it was not by any means like a well-oiled machine, um, whereas, of course, Vibe really was. So, I, I you know, I wanted to sort of pull that and that was kind of like my proposition to um, the team that I built there was like, look, we, you know, we're not going to have a lot of money to pay you. Um, but this is an investment in yourself. We're going to make a product that all of us are incredibly proud of. And it's going to be career changing for, for each and every one of us. Um, because I'm, I'm going to spend the time to show you how people at big companies make magazines and we're going to hold ourselves to these standards of copy editing and fact checking um and you know just the whole process of you know rounding pages and all that kind of stuff and but we're going to make something that's really ahead of the curve and sharp and hopefully it's going to get us all you know some attention and get us on the map um and i think you know to be honest, when I look at the players that were part of it and where all of them have ended up, you know, I, I think that it, it absolutely worked, um, you know, to surprising levels of success. Assembling that team in the beginning, was it always easy to convince everybody to join that team and see the vision as it was in your mind back then? Were there any challenges in assembling that dream team of yours? Well, I mean, yes, the, the challenge was that we had absolutely no money. Um, right. Those guys no budget. Yeah, we had no budget. Uh, they didn't want to pay anyone for anything, um, especially not editorial team at all. Um, 
And, you know, I sort of was very fortunate, you know, the team sort of came together. Uh, I, I put a, an ad on the Mass Appeal website and somehow, and I really to this day don't know how, um, Mary Choi, um, who would go on to become, you know, a very acclaimed YA novelist. Um, and I believe she's about to be a screenwriter and director if this, uh, strike ever ends. But, um, Mary emails me within like 15 minutes of the post going up on the mass appeal site. Um, and then I had two younger friends from high school who had come home from college uh, and were living at home, not doing anything. Um, this is sort of like, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, a sort of post 9-11 mini recession that happened. Um, and so in 2002, a lot of people that I knew that had just gotten out of college, like got out of college to no jobs waiting for them. Um, and so my friend Carrie and my friend uh, Justin, who I'd gone to high school with, they were the year below me, you know, had been just hitting me up like on some, hey, I'm back in Brooklyn. Like you want to hang out, have a beer or whatever. Um, I was like, yo, what are you guys doing? And neither of them had anything going on. They were like, you know, just job hunting. Um, I was like, well, look, if you want to do something to build your resume, I'm uh, I'm making this magazine in, in Red Hook um, and I can teach you how to make, you know, how publishing works um, and you can put it on your resume and, you know, maybe get some clips um, if you're interested. And both of them were like, cool. So they would uh, caravan down to, to Red Hook to, to come hang. And then, uh, and then Jack Irwin um, was, uh, a childhood friend of Dart Parker um, and Dart had kind of been like hey my boy just graduated Berkeley and he's working at the Strand um, but I know he has interest in like trying to get into magazines and da 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 and again I was like hey man um, can't offer you anything except for some on the job training and skills um, but if you're interested in you know coming by the office uh, in the evening after you get off at the strand, um, I could use an extra set of hands, you know, to, for some writing and some copy editing and fact checking and all this stuff. And, you know, I got the four of that sort of core team of four together and that we, we started churning out the, the magazines. Um, and yeah, I mean, it really did create that, that launch pad. Cause I think about 12 or 13 months later, Vibe came back to me asking me to be the senior editor, which is pretty crazy because, you know, literally a year prior, they had snubbed <laughs> me in the associate editor right. role. Um, and yeah, and today, you know, all of them, you know, Jack was, you know, one of my core guys at, at Complex for years. He ran um, content marketing at, at Stadium Goods um, and Carrie would end up actually working with Sasha years later on the... Um, Wu-Tang documentary um, and Mary would have this very illustrious career uh, as, as a writer first, you know, um, for publications and then, you know, writing literary fiction. So at which point do you think it really caught its stride and came into its own and developed a pace? I mean, honestly, From which issue? First issue, the first issue, number 18, um, we kind of, in my not so humble estimation hit it out the park um 
you know, that issue, the, it had a, a split cover. One cover was um, Nas and Large Professor, um, uh, an interview that I did down in, in Orlando while they were finishing up Godson. Um, and the other car, then we came up with a story idea. I wasn't quite ready to put 50 Cent on the cover, but at this point he had already signed with Shady um, and we knew the record was coming. So we did uh, 50 Cent's Guide to Guns and um, basically he gave us a tour of a collection of guns um, and talked about what he liked and didn't like. And um, one of the images from that was just so striking. Um, it was like a sort of like 38 revolver with the serial number scratched off. And um, Adrian from Massfield was like, yo, this is too dope. I know we promised Nas a cover, but like we have to put this, this gun cover would just be so hard. And uh, and we were like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. So we did that. That same issue has um, an interview with Jim Jones, like probably the first Jim Jones interview. At that point, he had maybe like two verses on like two Cameron albums. Um, And I did a two-page story on Kanye West. And the photo from that interview would end up being the cover of Get Well Soon. Very rarely do you encounter self-contained people. This man can do everything himself. He living it. So he's like God saying, I'm about to hand you the world. Just know at any given time, I can take it away from you. Actually, in the Genius um, documentary, when he's taking those photos in Tribeca, um, I think most people probably assume that that's for the cover of Get Well Soon, but it's actually the Mass Appeal shoot um, for this story. Um, and, you know, they cobbled that thing together um, right when he got out of the hospital, when, when he had, uh, you know, finished Through the Wire. Yeah, turn me up, yeah. What if somebody from the shadow was ill? Got a deal on the hottest rap label of Brown. But he wasn't talking about coke and birds. It was more like spoken words. Except he's really putting it down. And he explained the story about how blacks came from glory and what we need to do in a game. Good dude, bad night, right place, wrong time. In the blink of an eye, his whole life changed. If you could feel how my face felt. He was exactly who he is today back then in many ways i i was not ready for it um you know he i went in expecting probably someone closer to the disposition of just blaze you know someone like a deep music nerd uh aficionado um right. with like crazy reverence for you know all of the sort of classics that i grew up on um and instead i got this like incredibly arrogant dude who only really wants to talk about his clothes and you know um has very little interest actually talking about music also doesn't want to talk about producing at all because he's a rapper and 
anyone that doesn't understand that that's the future for him just has no place in this universe. And, you know, mind you, this is before Get Well Soon. So, like, okay. no one knows that he's even a rapper. But he's, like, rapping at me to my face, um, you know, for, like, I don't know, 25 minutes, like, when I first meet him. Um, <laughs> trying to be like, no, 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 you don't understand. You think you're you're talking to, like, uh, a producer, but nah, 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 nah. I'm a, I'm a real rapper. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I kind of, I've been like, my co my college roommate, um, Jesse was from Chicago. So I sort of knew a little bit of like the weird Chicago records, like the go-getter stuff that um, he had done on the underground there. Um, right. Most people in New York were totally unaware. So I sort of knew like he had done some choruses and whatever, had a verse here or two, but like, I had no idea that, you know, he was not, I thought at most, maybe he was trying to be like a Dr. Dre, like, all right, I'm going to do a compilation and like, you know, I'll have some verses and, but no, no, no. He wanted to be Jay-Z. Um, and yeah. And when we, when I wanted to talk about De La Soul, he wanted to talk about MC Hammer. Um, he was just, you know, a contrarian and like totally over the top, uh, everything that you see in that documentary. Um, you know, but I think for me, the real takeaway, though, was that it's like, I think a lot of people were rubbed the wrong way or like didn't, you know, thought, oh, you should be like humble, or you should be grateful or, you know, all that kind of shit. And like, I don't know, to me, it was like making that kind of music in 2001, 2002 was so radically going against the grain we're you know we're four years into triton beats like everybody mm -hmm. rapping on swiss beats type shit and it takes a certain you know conviction and confidence to make something that is completely the opposite of what is hip at in a moment and to to just to do it absolutely sure that it is actually what is going to be popular um and so you know i again i was like whoa that guy is a lot that is a big personality but i also was like if he didn't have that personality he wouldn't be making these types of beats and making these types of records like you don't buck every convention if you're insecure or you're following trends or chasing, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, validation. If you had to pick some of the most defining moments during your time with Mass Appeal that I, I guess stand out as memories you're most proud of today, what would those moments include? I mean, yeah, I, well, going to Orlando with, uh, the photographer Piotr Sikora and Adrian from Mass Appeal to shoot Nas and, and interview him in Large Professor was really uh, an insane, incredible trip. Um, that, like, you know, we were three 20 something meatheads. And so we were acting totally nuts and I don't know, doing donuts on grass and ended up at a gun range shooting like all kinds of crazy semi-automatic weapons and wild it was you know we were i don't know just acting stupid nothing crazy, nothing like uh untoward but you know 
Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely an experience. Um, and then also like, you know, that image of him and Lodge Professor sitting at that table was really incredible. Like we just drove around um, like a sort of, you know, working class neighborhood in Orlando, right outside the downtown. And we're just looking for cool locations. And um, we saw this, this couple was sitting out on their porch and they had like so much shit piled up in front of their house, like just like, like boom boxes on top of boom boxes on top of like, and it was, you know, sort of just like, you couldn't art direct something like this if you purposefully wanted to make sort of like a, a scene of American decay, if that makes any sense. And we just walked over to them and we're like, hey, and the dude was like, yeah, what's up? My name's Head. It's my wife. Um, and we were like, hey, we're gonna about to shoot with this rapper. Um, you know, would you be comfortable with us shooting um, in front of your home? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, oh, yeah, my wife, you know, she just she can't throw anything away. She just piles it up and just makes these piles. They're cool looking, though. Right. And we're like, yeah, they are. Um, and then he was like, hey. If you want to do anything in the inside of the home, you know, it's it's she she's got quite a vibe going on in there too. And we walk in the the house, and like that was like the kitchen slash living room, um, which is like draped with like, you know, leopard skin and like all these like old dashikis and stuff like this. And um, it was just like, yo, this what a like the rich in texture scene this is crazy you can't you know again you you couldn't art direct this for a movie you know it would take a very sophisticated uh production designer to to be able to like come up with something um this sort of baroque and and particular and uh and then we you know nas and and uh extra p and uh nation or millennium thug and one of them all sort of caravaned over and met us there. And, you know, we paid head a few hundred dollars and shot a bunch of images on the, on the porch. And then a couple at that kitchen table um, and ultimately went with that for the cover. And so that, that was really a, an awesome and sort of defining moment. Um, and then, yeah. And then, you know, obviously talking to Kanye um, in that moment, you know, would be sort of the, the kernel of, will become a you know real relationship and eventually a friendship um that was super important for you know my run at complex um but also it's been cool you know i wasn't at the photo shoot so it was cool to see the genius see that in in the genius doc and then even cooler is i don't know if you remember this from the doc but there's a scene where he gets his hand on the magazine for the first time and i remember i we yeah. got it back and I knew he was like just getting out of the hospital because I had talked to him when he was like, I don't know, maybe two days after he, he got to the hospital um, and we were at the printer. And so he was like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm getting better. It's, I'm going to be all right. Um, and asked me to send him magazine. So I sent him, I don't know, you know, maybe five copies of the magazine or whatever. But in the documentary, they're at like Taco Bell or something. And um one of his guys is like, oh yeah, look, look what we got in the mail. And they pull out the issue. And it, I actually got to see his reaction 
to being in the magazine for the first time, you know, Dope. 20 years later. What are your recollections of managing to convince Eminem to talk for his first appearance in XXL with Graham 50? And what was your relationship with XXL professionally and personally until that point? So, you know, while I was doing Mass Appeal, I was still writing for Elliot, and that was really kind of what was keeping the lights on in the, the uh, NCB residence. Um, and uh, one day I get hit up by Paul Rosenberg, and, you know, I had known that Elliot, Elliot loved, really, really likes Eminem. He loves Eminem's music, and it was kind of the bane of his existence that he had inherited this beef with Eminem because, you know, the the editorial team that had written the article that had pissed him off and had done the illustration that pissed him off, you know, he was not part of those things. And, you know, I know he had made a few efforts to try to reach out to Paul to try to squash it. But, you know, at that point, Eminem's team had a great relationship with the source. The source was, you know, they were very, very supportive of him. And, um, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know if, if, if they ever said it, but, you know, Eminem does well when he has a foil, right, to sort of like, uh, you know, perform against, whether it's, you know, some, a rapper he's got beef with or, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like, why rock the boat? Like, he doesn't need to make up with XXL. There's no, there's no sort of like winning in that for them. And... So I think, you know, Elliot's sort of, uh, you know, um, kites had been sort of rebuffed. And then one day I just get this text that's like, hey, man, um, you know, I want to get lunch with Elliot. Can you help me set, set it up? And so I reached out to Elliot and I'd say, hey, Paul reached out. He wants to have lunch with you. Um, and Elliot's like, yo, I need you to come just to like sort of lubricate the situation, make sure, you know doesn't get like too tense between us. Cause like, you know, I know you have the relationship, whatever. So I'm like, okay, cool. And so I really go into it pretty blind. And of course, Elliot, you know, is pushing. He, he sees that 50 is coming, you know, 50 has a great relationship with XXL. They were very supportive of him. Even when he was like being blackballed and was cold, they were still covering him and taking him seriously. Um, and I think Elliot knew that like whoever gets the M50 Dre moment, that's that's going to be like a make or break magazine cover um, and really sort of will be determinant in who is the sort of dominant voice in, in hip hop publishing. And, you know, at, the, at that moment, Elliot had really like pulled XXL from like a distant second place to being like neck and neck with the source, at least in terms of mind share, if not necessarily sales, but they were definitely like, you know, a contender. And so anyway, we, we get there and I think Elliot from the, you know, jump was like bent on trying to make that happen. Um, that, you know, the, the three headed monster cover happen. And it just so happened that a day or two before, um, I guess the inciting incident was that uh, Benzino had gone on DJ Clue and played a diss record about Eminem. And 
So I think Paul was just kind of like exploring his options um, and seeing, you know, what, what was, what was Elliot talking about? Um, and Elliot was like, look, man, you know, the people who made the stuff that, you know, um, pissed you guys off, like we're, that's none of those people work here anymore. Like I'm a huge fan. We've been super supportive of 50 cent. We want to be, you know, cover, um, what you guys have coming up. Um, you know, obviously we are journalists and we have standards and ethics and, you know, this is not a, a, a propaganda machine, but you're, you're, you're talking to people that, you know, are interested in, you know, covering this movement, um, and who are fans of it. So, uh, and they hashed out a deal at that table, like, all right, you know, I hear you. And I think, you know, I don't think I, I, I don't get the sense that Paul ever had anything personal about it. I just think, you know, um, Eminem had been really pissed off at, you know, whatever, when they, they, they did like an unauthorized cover, I think back in like 99, maybe or something, 98, um, about him. And, you know, they decided to do the thing and, and, you know, as we're walking out, Elliot was like, yo, you know, you got to write that one, right? And I was like, shit. You know, it's about my relationship with 50 going back. And, you know, obviously that I had known Eminem since 98. Um, and yeah, that, you know, ended up being a real game-changing and life-changing moment for everyone involved. You find me in the club, bottle full of bub, mama, I got what you need, if you need to fill a buzz. I'm in the having sex, I ain't in the making love, so come give me a hug, you're in the getting rough. You can find me in the club, bottle full of bub, mama, I got what you need, if you need to fill a buzz. I'm in the having sex, I ain't in the making love, so come give me a hug, you're in the getting rough. Being at the In The Club video shoot to capture it was, you know, there's moments where you're just like, I'm I'm witness I'm witnessing history. This is this is a moment and the things that are transpiring here are are going to sort of change the course of culture. Um and and I felt very hyper aware of that. And then on top of it, you know, it was an, it was a really amazing trip for me um because I was in LA with Elliot um Elliot came out for they had just put out um Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism and um Elliot you know was nice enough to uh extend my travel and let me um stay out there with those guys while they were uh on their book tour um and you know it was incredible to be able to like reconnect with those guys I don't know if you've ever watched the show family ties where we were like joking. It's like, there's, there's an episode of family ties where they go to like Paris. Um, and so like, it was like ego, ego trip in LA was, uh, like the family ties in Paris episode. Um, funny. and you know, and then there was also just really funny hijinks. Like, so, you know, that weekend, like at the, in the club shoot, Eminem was also shooting the video for sing for the moment. And then me and Elliot are staying at the standard hotel downtown. And, <laughs> Um, the day after we shoot, uh, the cover story, I'm, I'm getting the elevator and, you know, when you get in the elevator and somehow like it ends up going down when you're trying to go up, yeah. the elevator goes down to the basement floor 
and the door opens and it's fucking Eminem. And at first, you know, he's a very uh, sort of shy, insular person. So he like starts to step onto the elevator and he's like, without like looking at me. And I'm like, what the fuck is like, I just saw this guy yesterday. Like what, why are you in my hotel? And he, then he finally like sees that I'm like, I'm kind of, you know, my, my posture is there is such that I'm trying to engage him. And I'm like, yo, he looks up and is like, yo, what the fuck are you doing here? Um, and anyway, it turns out they were shooting the Superman video in huh. standard um, that day on like, I don't know, whatever, the eighth floor or something like that. Um, anyway, so then we drop him off on the eighth floor and I end up going up to the penthouse to meet uh, Elliot for drinks. Um, and I'm like, by the way, uh, on my way up here from the room, <laughs> I ran into Marshall Mathers. That was weird. Um, That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, it, that was just like, I mean, it was an incredible moment. And um, yeah, and, and also just a really great trip, like getting to spend that, you know, th- I don't know, three or four days with those guys um, was really special. Well, it ends up becoming a triumph for XXL, doesn't it? And until that point, I think it's actually their best-selling issue to date. In terms of what happens after the story was published, were you in any way embroiled and involved in any of the friction between Elliot Wilson and the source? No, um, I mean, I was I was aware of it, and um, I definitely I'm trying to remember, like the whole incident with Benzito going to the step to him at, at XXL absolutely happened, and I was somehow in the neighborhood, or I was going to meet. I don't know. I remember I ended up getting a drink with Elliot down the block, like within like thirty minutes of that transpiring um and getting downloaded on on the whole scene um but no i i was never you know part of it i never really had any interaction with dave mays or benzino um i think mays maybe left like an angry voicemail on my on my uh phone at at complex at some point because of some list we did um (laughs) and then subsequently almost the lists yeah I, i can't remember what it was and then and then he's reached out subsequently like just, you know, as a sort of like industry peer to say hello. I don't know. We've never really uh, interacted, so to speak. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was, that was definitely real. And I mean, you know, and obviously the, the beef with 50 and and John and, you know, it it was a pretty fraught period. I mean, also the hip hop police stuff was happening at that point. Um, And so, you know, it, it, there was definitely, it felt like everything was very edgy and there was a lot of stakes. Elliot kind of teaches you the value of being competitive, doesn't he, as a journalist? And I'm wondering as to if there was any defining moments that might have elevated your work as a result of being competitive, be it as a journalist or later on a music executive. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, Elliot when he, you know, he went into the job at XXL, um, very, like, I would say, you know, borderline obsessed with taking down the source. That was a very clear goal. Um, you know, he had worked at the source as the music editor. He had been the sort of, uh, the microphone master, um, giving out the, the mic ratings and stuff and had left, uh 
on principle in um, 1998 because I believe he had given um, the Tribe Called Quest album, The Love Movement, a three and a half mic rating and Dave Mays uh, bumped it up to a four um, like at the printer. And so he got the magazine back and the, the, the rating had changed. And, you know, I think he just felt that it was unethical and that it was undermine, undermining to, you know, for the publisher to come in and make a sort of editorial taste decision. And so he left. Um, and, but, you know, Elliot grew up loving the source. Um, and I think in, in many ways that experience really um, sort of tainted something that was really special to him. And I think he felt mm. like, you know, his his career velocity was to be the music editor of The Source and eventually to be the editor in chief. Um, mm. And so when that happened, I think, you know, he, he felt very frustrated um, because, you know, once once someone undermines you like that and the trust is gone, like you can't, it's just over. And especially if it's this thing that you have sort of like idolized as a child, you know, the specialness is gone. You can't ever, you know, once you know Santa's not real, you can't ever not know that. Um, yeah. And so when he got to double XL, I think he was like, I want to do it. I want to do this and I want to do it the right way. I want to do it without all of the politicking and all of the sort of like industry, um, you know, interconnectivity and all of the sort of stuff that, um, you know, uh, institutions like a source or, you know, to a lesser extent, like a vibe become sort of mired in when they, you know, when they exist for a really long time, it's just sort of a natural part of the, you know, bureaucracy grows within and then you become sort of constrained by this interconnection of, you know, uh, business relationships. And right. so I think he felt like I want to get this gig at XXL and I want to document hip hop for the fans. And I want it to be an honest picture of what is going on. I don't want it to be sort of uh, mediated by relationships or whatever. And so for me, there, I, there was two things that I really picked up watching Elliot do that was one, he built a moat around himself. He did not have relationships with any of the the PR reps, like obviously he dealt with them to some limited degree when he had to, but he sort of like built a team around himself and they really were like the line of defense and like, you know, random publicist X like couldn't get Elliot on the phone. Like, unless it was, you were talking about a cover or something really big, like he is not available. Um, and by doing that, you know, he was able to sort of keep himself from being constrained by these these relationships and, you know, the sort of um, unsaid quid pro quo that happens in a lot of sort of entertainment journalism. Um, and I always, you know, I thought that was very canny of him and very smart. Um, and then the other thing was that Elliot was incredibly competitive. And, you know, I think that's just part of his personality across the board, but in, in that moment, because he had this sort of, you know, 
point of fixation, this foil in the source, it all got directed at that. And, you know, I, as I moved through my journey, definitely saw, you know, and appreciated the value in, in how Elliot both operated on an island and, and sort of kept himself from, you know, um, being compromised. And then also right. how singularly focused he was on the success of, you know, the project, which was, you know, XXL. And, you know, when I got to Complex, I absolutely, you know, in the same way that I, I looked at what Mimi had done in terms of like the strategy of positioning of the book, um, Elliot's sense of competition and um, his sort of disinterest in playing the political game um, were things that I really, you know, emulated. Make sure you tune in next week for the third and final part of our conversation with Noah, in which we discuss complex, Def Jam, idea generation, and everything between. show my appreciation for this podcast i wish i could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when fly fidelity updates because it's so great but i don't think there's a way i can do any of those things uh-oh you're wrong <laughs> subscribe on spotify apple podcasts and soundcloud and never miss an episode find us on twitter instagram and facebook my people saw you with me where you were